Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. You have a Bible. Let's open up to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. And let me pray one more time briefly while you turn there. Pray with me in your hearts. Father God, we love you and we thank you for your word that you have not left us afloat in the world with no guidance, with no light, with no insight, with no uh, north star to guide us. We invite you, Holy Spirit, that you would come near in a fresh way, in a powerful way, that you would help us to hear, to listen well, to learn well, to remember well, to apply well, that we would be changed, that we would be grown up in Christ, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 9. And ask yourself, beginning of a new year, you look back last year, maybe you did a little bit of evaluation. Do you ever feel in life kind of small, insignificant, unimportant, unseen, unknown, unappreciated? Have you ever felt like sometimes life just feels kind of random, out of control? Is anybody steering this ship? Maybe it's just bad things happen, hard things happen, negative experiences come into your life, and you can't see any good reason coming out of it. It doesn't make sense to you. There seems to be no progress. Sometimes we just feel like failures. Sometimes looking back on a past year to do some evaluation can almost be depressing because you said, I remember last January, first week, I set some big lofty goals in different areas of my life, and now I come to the end of the year, and it's like, yeah, those didn't happen. Now, when we start to feel like life is small, life is insignificant, life is out of control, there's really two different eras that we can fall into. One is just to give up. It's always going to be this way. I'm kind of stuck in some bad patterns. It's never going to get better. What's the point? I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to survive. I'm just going to kind of eke along. And that's the wrong way to respond. The other one is different, but it's equally wrong. If there's a sense, doesn't seem like anybody's running this world very well, I'm going to take the reins. Now, this is more the American way. I'm going to take control. I may not be able to control the whole universe, but by golly, I'll control my little sphere of influence. And I'll make sure some good things happen. And that may start a little bit better, but it often doesn't end well. What we're going to do this year is we're really going to do a long comparison and contrast of King Saul and King David. We're going to start that this morning. Or another way to look at it is we're going to start in 1 Samuel when Saul first comes onto the scene. And we're just going to go through the book of 1 Samuel together. So this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 9. And let me just give you a little bit of the background. The first eight chapters is really the story of a man named Samuel. The book is named after him. Uh, He was a prophet. He was a priest. And in many ways, he was a national leader. He was, to some degree, a lot like Moses, kind of the total package leading the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel really started as one family, Abraham's family, grew into a large family. Then it turned into a nation of 12 different tribes. And sometimes they were kind of loosely united together. Other times they were separated. Sometimes they were even at war with one another. But Samuel comes onto the scene and he brings some degree of national unity. But the people, as Samuel's getting old, his sons aren't that great. Chapter 8 says basically the people assemble and they say, we want a king. And God 
says to Samuel, give him a king. Samuel goes to the people, says, you're going to get a king, but everybody go home for now. It's kind of anticlimactic. And then you pick up in chapter 9, right where we're going to start in verse 1. So 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerorah, son of Bechorath, son of Athena, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. So we start off in this story. There's a wealthy, well-to-do family, probably some power and significance. That's why you kind of get the long introduction there of who their family heritage and lineage was. And they've got a son who's really good looking. He's impressive. And he's heads and shoulders taller than everybody else. And one day they wake up and the donkeys are gone. Now we may not care that much about donkeys. And this would be much more significant than just... Your pet dog or cat ran away. This would have been a work apparatus. This would be like showing up on the job site and some important piece of industrial equipment is gone. It's lost. Maybe it's been stolen. And you're assigned to go find it. And it probably was a large degree their wealth. Back then you didn't so much always take care of your wealth as far as how much gold and silver you had. That might have been part of it. But part of it was how much cattle. It was more of an agrarian society. So some of their wealth and something very important For their work was lost, and Saul was sent on a mission to find it. So look at verse 5. They search high and low, they can't find it. They can't find the donkeys. When they came to the land of Zup, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So Saul and one of his servants have been sent on this important task. Go find the donkeys. And they're searching all throughout the countryside. They have traveled long. They have traveled far. They've run out of food. They're very far from home now. And Saul says, You know what? We failed. We might as well go on home because at this point, dad's going to start to worry about our welfare. Who cares about the donkeys as much? Are there times in your life when you feel like maybe you've been giving an important assignment and you've tried your best, but at some level, your best wasn't good enough. You failed. Something important to you. You've been working at it. You've been doing your best and it's just not coming together. But his servant has the idea, wait a second. I know about this man of God that lives nearby. Let's go see him. But the tradition was you went to see the man of God, asked him for some insight, supposed to take him a gift. Saul says, we don't have anything. And it's almost like the servant. You ever had the experience where you pull a pair of jeans or something out of the uh, laundry and then you realize, man, I left a $20 bill in here. He just kind of discovers, you know, I got a little bit of silver here. We'll give it to him. Okay, let's go for it. So they're going to go to the city. So verse 11, as they went up the hill, 
to the city. They met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the play, the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. So if they'd gotten there a day earlier, the seer wouldn't have been there. And as soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. Verse 14. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. And then skip down to verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where's the house of the seer? So they literally bump into Samuel coming out of the city, but they don't know who he is. They don't recognize him. They're like, hey, can you tell us where the prophet is? Now, up until this point, what I want us to see is this seems like a pretty boring story, does it not? And I'll be honest, I spent a good amount of time in the month of December thinking and praying, what do I want to teach on in the new year? And what would be best for this congregation? And I had different thoughts and ideas, but I really didn't land it on. I really want to do this compare and contrast of David and Saul. And I want to start at the very beginning, 1 Samuel 9. I was excited, and so a couple weeks ago, started reading through this chapter. And I'll be honest, the first time I read through the chapter, I was like, oh no. This is not very exciting. This is kind of boring. This is kind of slow. There's not much here. What have I done? And I'll, I'll, this honestly happens to me more often than you might imagine. How am I going to pull enough truth out of this one chapter to exhort people, to help people, to give practical applications? But as oftentimes happens with the scripture, at first glance, it can seem fairly dry, very boring. That ever happened to you in your personal time along with the Lord reading the Bible? It's not sinful to say so. You don't have to raise your hand, okay? But usually if you dig deeper, you get gold. John Piper has a great quote that he says, you know, in your personal reading of the Bible, if it's kind of quick and shallow, like raking, what do you tend to get when you just rake? You get leaves. But if you dig, you do the hard work, that's when you tend to find the precious jewels. So we're going to try to dig this morning. But really the first point of this, the first half of this chapter in some sense is this. It's life from our point of view. And life from our point of view on planet earth, oftentimes it just feels pointless, does it not? It feels purposeless. It feels like we are just wandering through. What am I doing with my life? What significance is it? It just feels like I'm doing little random tasks like looking for lost donkeys. And then, even in my little random, little, seemingly unimportant on the grand scale of things, I even fail at those tasks. But there's much more going on now. And we're going to look at the second half of the chapter, which is really God's point of view. And if from our point of view, it feels like we're just wandering through life from God's point of view. No, no, no. It's been written. It's been scripted. If from our point of view, it's purposeless. With God's point of view, it's full of purpose. There is a point. Okay, It's all been planned. So go back and look at verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. And in the Hebrew it literally says, he had uncovered to him. He'd opened it up. He'd made it clear. He'd made it plain. Verse 16. Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Now just pause there for a second. That's really powerful if you think about it. Did Saul feel like he had been sent to meet Samuel? 
He absolutely did not. He felt like I'm looking for lost donkeys and I have failed. And now my servant has a good idea. I can't even come up with good ideas around here. My servant has to do it. I can't even pay for the profit. My servant has to do it. Okay, all shucks. I guess we'll go. Joseph felt like he was beat up and sold into slavery. But God later says, no, no, no. I sent a man ahead of you to Egypt to prepare the way. The apostle Paul had great visions and desires that he was going to go to Rome. And he was going to witness for Christ. It was going to be his fourth missionary journey. Paul was a planner. But you know what? Paul didn't plan on going as a prisoner to be on trial. God's in control. Let's pick up right where we left off in the middle of verse 16. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come up to me. Verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. It's another way to say rule or lead my people. Then Saul approached Samuel on the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys... That were lost three days ago. Do not set your mind on them. For they have been found. For whom is all that is desirable in Israel. So basically Samuel says. You're going to have a feast with me today. And tomorrow I need to talk to you about some things. Some really important things. Not the donkeys. Don't worry about the donkeys. I know you're worried about the donkeys. Forget the donkeys. Donkeys already been found. And then the last little phrase is is a strange phrase. For whom is all that is desirable in Israel. And it either means one of two things. It could mean. The best things in Israel, they're about to be yours. You're going to become the king. And so in a sense, the taxes, the wealth, power is about to come to you. Could mean that. Or it could mean all of Israel is longing for a king. They've asked for a king. And you're the one they long for. Either way, the point was you're about to become king. So last phrase there, verse 20. Is it not for you and for all your father's house? You're going to be the king. Verse 21. Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamin from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Now this might have just been like false humility. But there's probably some legitimate, he's shy, he's modest. Benjamin was the smallest tribe. They had been ravaged years before. He's like, are you serious? I'm going to be the king? He's shocked. He's surprised. He did not see this coming. Verse 22. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And these were probably the nobility of the surrounding area. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. That was typically the best part that went to the priest. So he's getting, in a sense, the divine portion. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof. And he lay down to sleep back then, especially when it was hot outside. The best place to sleep was on the roof where you had a little wind, a little natural air conditioning. So he gets the seat of honor at the head of the table next to the prophet. He gets the plate of honor. 
the best piece of meat. And he gets the place to sleep of honor. He's getting all this honor lavished on him. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So he's anointed to be king. And the anointing with oil was really a sign of the presence of God coming on you in a personal way to empower you for the task that God was calling you to. Now, let's make some applications. Most of us here, we're good Presbyterians. We know the truth. We sang about it. God is sovereign over everything. Sovereign is just a big word that means control. He's the king. He's the ruler. And biblically speaking, God has control over every single thing that happens, big and small. It's easy to read the Bible, read a story like this and say, okay, yeah, this is about a guy becoming king, the king of Israel, like God's people. Of course God controls stuff in that guy's life, but I'm just a little nobody out here. Keep your finger. Well, just flip over to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16 for a second. Proverbs chapter 16. There's a lot of places that we could go, but this is maybe the best. Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs is almost exactly in the middle of the Bible, right after the book of Psalms. Proverbs chapter 16, look at verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Saying, you can make a plan. Somebody's asking you a question. You could be like, I'm planning to say X. And then when you open your mouth, you might actually say Y. Because that's what God wanted you to say. You ever had that happen? You ever said, I did not plan to say that. Why did that come out of my mouth? Because God wanted it to come out of your mouth. Look down to verse 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Again, you may have all these dreams, hopes, ambitions, and you may go in a totally different direction. Because the Lord determines it. And skip down to the very last verse, verse 33. This is the clearest. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, what is the lot? The lot, the easiest way to explain it, was like an Old Testament version of dice. So listen, big decisions like who you're going to marry, where you're going to go to grad school. And small decisions like when you roll the dice, when you're playing Yahtzee or Monopoly or Settlers of Catan or whatever you like to play. God controls all of it. Every single second, every single thing that ever has happened on planet Earth in your life ever will happen. Every thought, every word, every deed, every action, every desire, every affection, God's in total control. Now, that can seem a little bit like a threat at times. But for God's people, it's really a promise. You've got to know that. You've got to hang on to that truth. The second point is this, and it's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Let's don't flip there because I think most of you know it. If you don't, you should flip there. You should underline it. You should memorize it. It's one of the most glorious promises in the universe. God works all things together for the good of those that love him who've been called according to his purpose. 
If you are one of God's people, that means that the entire universe has been orchestrated to bless you. Even the bad stuff, even the hard stuff, even the painful stuff, even the crazy stuff, even the confusing stuff, even the sinful stuff, even your own sin. And I have to pause and say this here. Never let that truth on the front end encourage you to go ahead and sin because it will work out in the long way anyway. If you do that, you're not paying attention to Scripture. Because the Bible also makes clear we're responsible for our actions and there's terrible, painful consequences for sin, even for Christians. But on the back end of sin, when you're really struggling with maybe guilt and shame and regret, Romans 8.28 is a glorious promise. That even my sin, God will use in the long run to turn it into blessing. The third point would be this. And flip back to 1 Samuel for this one. 1 Samuel chapter 9 again. The third point is just this. Pray. And here's why I say this. I have known a lot of people, myself included, that when they fully first came to understand God's sovereignty, God's control over all things, it can have a negative effect on you at first. Has anybody else had that experience? I grew up as a great Southern Baptist. Got involved at Samford University with Campus Outreach, a ministry of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. I didn't know it at the time. And I'm getting around all these Presbyterians talking about the sovereignty of God and predestination. And I'm like, I don't believe this stuff. But you people share your faith, so I'll keep hanging out with you and trying to learn from you. And it was about a two-year wrestling process for me, just going through Romans 9 over and over and over and beating my head against the Apostle Paul. And when I finally came to see, I think it's Romans 9, 15 was the verse that finally broke me. It does not therefore depend on the man who runs or who wills. My first response honestly was, well then what's the point? Why does it matter what I do? Why am I waking up early and spending time with God? Why don't I just go make out with my girlfriend and do whatever I want? Because case sera, sera, right? Laissez-faire. Doesn't matter. Whatever will be, will be. But listen, guys. Listen. That is a logical conclusion. But it is a wrong and sinful conclusion. Because as much as the Bible speaks about the sovereignty, the control of God, it also speaks to the real responsibility of human beings. Now, how does my responsibility and God's sovereignty work together? We will never figure it out totally in this life. It's not illogical, it's supralogical. And we just have to humbly submit to it and trust. It's a mystery that it will be explained in the next life. And so, guys, look back. In this chapter that's clearly about God's sovereignty, I mean, Josh texted me this week, what are you going to preach on? I just said 1 Samuel 9. And he came back. I think maybe he had the same experience that I did. He was trying, he's like, uh, where are you going with this? And it was early in the week. I said, I'm not sure yet, brother. Pray for me. <laughs> but we didn't have any more communication. But did you notice the songs that he chose? Now, God was sovereign and Josh used his brain and it worked out really well. But in the middle of this chapter that's obviously about God's sovereignty... The key verse is verse 16. And look at what it says, right? Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man. Right? So there's the sovereignty. But then look at the very last sentence of the verse. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. 
It was God's plan, but in some sense, God's plan was in response to the misery of his people, the suffering of his people. They're oppressed by these wicked Philistines like ancient Nazis. And they're, they're hurting and they're crying, they're praying. And God's like, I see you, I hear you, and I'm going to raise up a deliverer for you. Your prayer life matters. So pray, think, use the brain that God's given you. I mean, did you notice the verses that we read in Proverbs? It's not wrong to plan your way. You should plan your way. You, it's good to set New Year's resolutions and 2024 goals. Set the best ones you can. But then you know what, guys? Hold them really loosely. Don't idolize them. Don't get attached to them. Because who knows what the Lord wants to do. And pray. God, bless me. Help me. Bless the work of my hands. Bless my goals. Bless my life. Bless my pursuit. And Lord, when I'm hurting, when I'm struggling, certainly pray then. And guys, please hear me on this. This may be the most important point for some of you this morning. When you pray, don't just go through the motions. Don't just do the box checking kind of prayer. The rote obedience, saying your prayers. God bless me, mom and dad, and the missionaries. There I did my spiritual duty for the day. You need to pray like a raw, exposed nerve. Here's where I'm at, God, this morning. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm doubting. Here's what I'm fearing. Here's what I'm unexcited about. Here's what I'm excited about. Here's my dreams. Pour your heart out to God, honestly. He sees you. He hears you. He cares for you. Even if you feel unseen by everybody else, He sees you. Even if you feel unheard by everybody else, He hears you. He cares. He has deep compassion. Rivers of mercy. Mountains of mercy and pity for His people. All right, the fourth point of application would just be this. Do normal life well. If you leave this chapter and you're like, wow, it was a, it was a, a boring story and then something supernatural happened and Saul got made king and you go out into life Monday morning looking for, I can't wait for my supernatural blessing this morning. Almost certainly you're going to be really disappointed. Now listen, I'm not saying God can't give you one. And if he gives you one, please text me. I'd like to hear about it. But that's not the norm every single day. The norm is God is working His supernatural plan through the natural processes of life. Every single day, under the surface of the water, under the deep, and you can't see it. And you just need to go about your normal duty and life every day. The boring stuff. Go to class. Love your wife. Show up on time for work. Look for your lost donkeys. Do your best. And pray that God will be blessing the work of your hand. He oftentimes meets us in the middle of the mundane to radically bless us. And the fifth point of application would be this. When the good things do come to you, let them humble you. Don't have a deserving, entitled mentality. I think that's one of the biggest things I struggle with in life. When things are going good, yeah, thank you, Lord. But it's kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm a good guy. You ought to bless me. I don't say that out loud. But th there's something deep in my heart that fills that sometimes. And you know how I know? Because when something bad happens, I'm like, oh, what happened? I'm supposed to be getting good stuff down here. And that exposes the entitlement. Listen, I've got pretty darn good theology. I'm going to be honest with you. You just have to to be a Presbyterian minister. They make you go to school. They give you all these tests. All right? 
But my theology up here is a heck of a lot better than it is down here. How about you? And so much of the goal of Christian maturity is, Lord, I want my heart to catch up with my brain. I know entitlement is evil, it's wicked, it's sinful. And yet my heart can still go there really easy. So when the Lord blesses you in a small way or in a gargantuan, gigantic way, pause and take time to say, thank you, God. Thank you. You know what I've seen a lot of Christians do? They do pray for stuff. And then a lot of times when the thing happens, sometimes they think this. Probably was going to happen anyway. Probably just circumstantially that was going to happen anyway, whether I prayed or not. You ever had that thought? Again, that's a very logical thought. It's also a very sinful thought. Because that is not the way that the Bible explains life. You pray for something and it happens, take the time to say, thank you, God. Thank you. I didn't deserve that. I deserve hell. And here I am living in America in the 21st century getting my prayers answered. It's pretty amazing. Pretty glorious. Now, the first king of Israel, he started in such a small way, seemingly random and insignificant, and yet God had a big plan for him to become a deliverer, to become a savior, to throw off the enemies, the Philistines, the oppressors. And that's very similar to the last king of Israel who started in such a small way. We just celebrated it. A poor, teenage, unmarried girl gets pregnant. And the baby gets born in some cave or stable laid in a feeding trough. But the forever king of Israel, he came as well to become a deliverer, a savior, and not so much from our physical enemies, but from our spiritual enemies. From Satan, from sin, and even from ourselves. St. Augustine used to pray, God save me from that evil man. Myself. You know, God had been silent for hundreds of years before the angel showed up and spoke and said, I know it's going to sound weird, but you're about to have a baby. You might feel like God is very silent in your life. But he's working in our waiting. He's working in the silence. Okay. He seems silent, but he's not. He's not without a plan. He has a perfect plan to deliver all of his people. So what should we do? We should trust him. We should look to him. We should hope in him. We should wait on him. We should live for him to the best of our abilities. But I'm not hoping in my efforts, my plans, my goals. I'm hoping in His plans. Because really the only time that one of God's people truly experienced the silence of God in a deafening way, so to speak, was when the Lord Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And God the Father gave the Lord Jesus an experience of forsakenness on the cross, an experience of His silence. So that all of us who put our faith in Christ, that He paid the price for my sins, even when God feels silent, I know He's never silent. He's always working for me. He's always near. He's always fighting for me.
because he has the perfect plan to bless me in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your perseverance and trust in the Father. Even when it didn't seem good, it seemed hard, it seemed terrible. Maybe it even felt futile to you. But you were so faithful in our place, in our stead, as our substitute. We look to you, we love you, we trust you. Grow us up in your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.